We are in a series uh, called Identity, which is sort of thinking through the Christian life in the digital age. And uh, we started off a little bit philosophical, and today we're sort of in the deepest moment, and then the next two Sundays we'll kind of climb out practically. Um, And so I try to start each series with some sort of digital media thought. So no picture today, but I will tell you about a show that you're probably most very familiar with. My family and I, we have a sort of a tradition of watching America's Funniest Videos each week. We sit down. It's cheap. I know we're probably losing cool points with some of you, but we do it. And we DVR it, so I'm not sure which episode we were watching this week, but nonetheless, we're sitting there watching it. And if you don't know America's Funniest Videos, it's a laugh show. It's uh, a show of video clips that are cute, humorous, trip and fall, you know, scary, like boo scare video clips. It's, uh, It's lighthearted. Well, this week we were watching the show, and there was what he, they call a video montage, which is where they put a whole lot of video clips together in a short concession of time and put it to a song. And I think the theme was slip and fall, 23 slip and falls in 37 seconds, or something like that. And so they're playing, and along comes you know people slipping and falling and tripping, and we're, we're laughing at that which is interesting. But it comes to a scene in the montage where there's a young girl. She's about 14 or 15 years old. She is standing on a stool. And she's filming herself. So the camera's set, like set on a table. She's filming herself, and she's doing a very difficult yoga pose, like foot, hand. That's as close as I can get. But she's holding on to it. And then the other arm, it's, it's top shelf yoga. Um, <clears throat> and she's standing on one leg on a stool. So, of course, the stool gives out and she falls. And we laugh. And then the video montage goes on a little bit more. And uh, another scene comes up of a young girl, about 14 or 15, standing on a stool, doing the same difficult yoga position, she trips and falls. And then it goes on a little bit longer, and another scene, I don't know if it was the same pose, but another scene of a young 14 or 15-year-old girl filming herself doing yoga. And by the time the montage was over, I think there were four or five examples of young ladies filming themselves doing yoga and a guy filming himself lifting weights. Barbell fell off and it was funny. At the time, it was just the montage came and went and we were just being a family and family life took over. But as the week sort of started to play out, I, my mind went back to that moment because, first of all, the, the physicality of the human being is very obvious in yoga. Yoga is a very physical, it expresses the human form profoundly. And here were three or four or five, I can't even remember, girls 
filming themselves. Nobody was holding that camera. Filming themselves. And, and I realized somewhere on Monday or Tuesday, they were going to post that. That's what that was. Because who films themselves? I'm thinking, that must have been for a post. They were perfecting this... The goal was to get it to Instagram, but because they tripped and falled, it went where bad Instagram videos go, which is AFP. Like, where do you go if you can't make it, right? But I, I think, and so maybe I'm not exactly right on it, but I think I'm generally right on The intention of this was to do this perfectly, this difficult position perfectly, and then post it to get likes or thumbs-ups or whatever it is, but the, the maneuver failed, and so it was scratched. Think about that. I think about a, a young 14 or 15-year-old girl who is training for a picture. That is... That's interesting. There was a young lady. She was an Australian model. Her name was, I think, Asina O'Neill. I don't know how to say her first name. She was an Instagram icon. Thousands of people would look at her every day. And it, her life became sort of an Instagram narrative. So, you know, each day she was wearing new outfits uh, you can imagine she was a very beautiful uh, young lady. And <clears throat> turned out the fashion industry began to push things to her because if she wore it, it would get attention. So she ended up being commoditized by the industry. And eventually she sort of has a confession and her confession is, I'm done with Instagram and I'm out. And in her confession was, I'm, I can no longer wake up each day and act like every day is the happiest moment of my life. And yet on, on the inside, I'm empty. You know, one narrative, one confession I read in, in, in working for this series was, was a young lady who says, I bought sushi today uh, for dinner. Since then, I have taken 65 photos of it. And I have 273 likes on my meal, right? She says, I buy new flowers every day for Instagram. I've never worn the same bathing suit on an Instagram photo. Like, what are they chasing? We, we know. I mean, the name of the series is Identity. We, we subtly know uh, that hiding behind a lot of our activity online can be commonly, right? There's a lot of wonderful things that happen on our smartphones, a lot of neutral things. But also, we're snooping around for a sense of personhood. This young lady O'Neill says this about her life on Instagram. She says she was, quote, living a living paradox of conditional self-love and constant self-hate. A conditional self-love and constant self-hate. Each day when she'd wake up, there was a chance for her to be proud of herself by taking the exact correct photo, getting the good photo that would get all of the likes, sort of the, the groundswell of approval, was the conditional self-love. But all of it was taking place beneath the cloud of the only reason people are looking at you is because you're doing this. 
They don't really like you. That might be the social media expression of, of sort of seeking identity. I think another, another main way that this takes place online is through pornography. Internet pornography is accounts. This is a, a widely accepted number. It accounts for 30% of all internet activity. Pornography. One of every three clicks is that industry. That is searching for identity. The irony, sort of the, par- the paradox of the young girl on Instagram of going to some place to be liked and coming away empty. That pattern is felt through so many other things like pornography. There's sort of the curiosity and the fascination with other person's sex warps over time until someone's sexual identity is by themselves. Across the bandwidth of countries and surveys, and these are all entirely secular, by the way, they're waking up and seeing things like nations that observe delayed virginity in adult males. Now, it's, they're not saying praise the Lord because they've been teaching abstinence. They're curious because they're not teaching abstinence. They're teaching sexual involvement. And yet in these sexual saturated cultures, the addiction is coming out on such a young age that the hypothesis right now is is it's too hard to have it with a person. Why do all the work? what began as a curiosity about another person has become an activity by yourself. We're going to be talking about idolatry today. The nature of idolatry. Idolatry is pursuing things, man-made things, to obtain meaning that comes only from God. Marshall McLuhan, you remember him from week one. Marshall McLuhan had a statement uh, dealing with any sort of technology, he, there was a question he thought you should ask. He, there were four, but the one that I'm thinking of right now is, what does this technology or this medium reverse into? He said, everything, every sort of innovation or technology that you make, if taken to an extreme, ends up having the reverse effect of its original intent. Something designed to bring people together ends up isolating them. When sort of Digested in extreme extent, right? We've seen that. I was thinking about that the other day. I was driving my car back from Horsham, Pennsylvania. It's about an hour and a half drive, and I'm thinking to myself about this principle. I'm driving in my car, and I say, let me talk, ask the question about the car. What, what has happened since the creation of the car? And I said, I'm, I'm certain the intention of the car when it was made was to make my life shorter make my life more convenient. Now in the village, I can do that. The milkman can be done by 10 o'clock in the morning instead of three in the afternoon because he now has a vehicle. There I am on an hour and a half drive home and I realized its reverse effect has taken place. I just go farther. And I have disconnected my world from where I live and where I work and where I play. Now those are three distinct places rather than the same place. It has disassembled cultural parameters. 
in reverse. We're going to be talking about idolatry. And, and in the background is the smartphone. In the background is how does maybe some of this, how have you used it to a degree that it's, it's backfiring? I want to say the smartphone's not evil. And plenty of good things happen. I'm dealing with the deeper question of idolatry. So I have, I have in this room the person in my heart who is wounded. So if you're fine, just listen along. Uh, but let's talk about idolatry. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel was a judge. That's... Uh, a title for uh, a man that God raises up in the ancient times to deliver his people from trial. And Samuel was a judge. The book of Judges is a sad account, it's a sad narrative of a nation of Israel that over time forgot about the Lord, forgot his teachings, and they wandered. And when they wandered, they, be, they did wicked things. And so the Lord allowed the nations around Israel to rise up and oppress them. And through their oppression, through their hardship, came a cry of repentance. And when they would cry out in repentance, the Lord would give them a judge. He would raise up from among them a judge who would save them from their plight and restore them to a sense of freedom. Okay, And that became a cycle in the book of Judges. Forgetting God pursuing wicked things, becoming oppressed by people, crying out in the oppression, the Lord delivering, sending a judge who would deliver and bring back freedom and hope. That, that cycle of judges happens five, six, something close to ten times in the book. And the whole time in Judges it's happening, it's a downhill spiral. Each time the Hebrews go through a cycle, they're a little less of who they are on the, second, on the back end. So the second and third iterations of this, they're less and less and less until the book of Judges ends. And Samuel is the last judge. He's the last judge. So you can imagine right now, Israel is a shadow of its former glory. It's sort of a failed state. It's lukewarm. It's unimpressive. And this is the environment in which Samuel is serving. And here's what happens. I want to read the first five verses of 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Stop there. I'm going to give you a principle of idolatry, and then you'll see it here, which is the first step towards idolatry is to mistake a heart problem for an external problem. Let me say that again. The first step in idolatry is to 
for you or for me to mistakenly place the, the onus or the centrality of a heart problem on an external problem, something that we can see, touch, get our hands on, something created and material. And that's what they've done here. They think their problems are the bad judge. They think the problem is Samuel's old and his sons are bums. And if we just had, if we only had a real king, then our problems would go away. That's the, that's the thinking here. What they've done is they've, they've transported the real problem to something that's external. Truth be told, judges were never plan A for God. You can't find judges in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. Judges is a workaround for a people who have forsaken the righteousness of God. That's the problem. The problem is they are a forgetful people, and they don't rally around the Lord very long at all. So they have no sense of righteousness, no sense of godliness. It's not The question for the Israelites is not the form of governance. It's the fact that they don't pursue Yahweh. But they're saying, the problem is the judge. It would be like in your town or your community saying, the problem with all of the crime is poor law enforcement. Nope. The problem is deeper than that. These problems might be real. I'm not saying that the law enforcement, poor law enforcement is not a problem. I'm saying it's not the problem. Crime is the problem. And we do this. Idolatry enters sort of on the wings of a real, though external, problem. My wife is not meeting my needs. Real problem. Maybe totally legit. It's not the problem. My husband doesn't share with me. He's inattentive. My parents don't understand what I'm going through. My employer doesn't appreciate me. I'm cooped up in my house all day long. I'm not making what I should be making. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not fit enough. I'm on the wrong diet. I have been a victim. If you knew what they did to me, then you wouldn't say. These are all real problems. I'm not, I am not using these as an example to discount or to undermine or to say, oh, those aren't real or that those don't count. I'm here to say that idolatry rides into town saddled up on a truth. It saddles up and it rides in and, and the sense is that is that very real problem is the heart problem. That's how idolatry starts. And a corollary to this, okay, so sort of the formation of idolatry is identifying external realities as being the main problem, right? avoiding the main internal problem by placing the blame on an external problem and then placing all of our hope of actually being happy or content or whole in the rectification of the external problem. So the problem is out there 
And if we could only fix that, we'd be fine. That is the foundation of the idol's temple. The promise to fix your problem, even though you've misdiagnosed it. It all goes downhill from there. This is what ends up happening. Listen, listen to what the Lord calls it, okay? I'm not calling this idolatry. He's calling it idolatry. Well, let me pick up in verse 6. But the thing, so Samuel, okay, Samuel's told, you're an old man and your sons are losers. So he's sad. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, now listen, obey the voice of the, of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, really important. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Do you hear how sophisticated God's words about idolatry are there? We'd like to think in these these old, sort of toothless, toothless nomadic people that they walk around bowing down at statues all day long. That's not how he's describing it here. It's a highly sophisticated definition of idolatry. He's saying their request for a king is tantamount to them running off and serving another god. He's talking then, just like we would today, that you, someone runs off for a more beautiful bride, or a faster car, or they, whatever, chasing all these alternatives. We say that's idolatry. He's saying the exact same thing right here. Their dissatisfaction with their lot in life, rather than being anchored on, on a sense of we're where we are because we don't listen to God. Their sense of where we are where we are because we can't have one of those. Everybody else gets one of those. If we had a king, we'd be the bomb. Misdiagnosing a heart problem is something external and then placing your hope in some sort of innovative approach to dealing with that. that is, that's the root of idolatry. And we see it. We need the next thing. We need to get the improvement. Improved upon, fixed upon, upgraded, boosted, Z-rated, turbo. We need to amp everything up, right? I, you know, the PAL's not good enough for us. You know the PAL has a free weight room? Do you know that? The PAL's not good for us. So the why, the why is not good for us, so we got to go to CrossFit. It's always this thing or that thing. It might be in here. Watch what happens. I'm going to give you the principle and then we'll read it. When you misdiagnose, you take something that's deep inside and you put it out so you can see it. Right? When you separate yourself from the problem... And then when, if that's your diagnosis, when you reach to something else made to fix it, okay, that's the foundation of idolatry. And when that happens, the enemy's at work and what typically happens now is the costs of this exchange are underplayed or masked. So you and I, we, when we're caught in idolatry, are caught up in the promise of what might happen. And we miss the cost. 
This is what it says in verse 9. The Lord wants to make sure this doesn't happen for them. He says now, he's speaking to Samuel, Now then obey their voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. He says, Samuel, give them a king. It's what they want. Give them a king. Hand them over to their desires. Give them what they want. But listen, tell them what it's going to cost them. And I'm going to read 10 through 22, I suppose. You're going to hear what a king costs you. Just imagine before you read it, if you you were a people and you wanted a king, why might you want a king? I figure things like uh, I'd want to be able to farm in peace. Want a sense of justice, law and order, sense of national pride, maybe. I want to feel safe. Okay, just keep all those things in mind. Here's what it's going to cost. Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. You get the trend? He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, the best of your young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see the path of idolatry here? They see promise. God sees slavery. They see hope. Because the problem is not in them. The problem is around them. God sees abandonment towards slavery. The people can't hear it. Verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we shall be, there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard that, he, he relented. Go home, I'll get you your king. All promise, no cost. That is a pattern of idolatry. All promise, no cost. Whenever you hear victimless crime, watch out. Whenever someone says, "Ah, it's fine, watch out. It's free. Watch out. Many of us in the church who know what addictive idolatry feels like can bear witness to the fact that we go in with high hopes to get our identity fixed. We don't speak that way. We never speak that with that much clarity, or we wouldn't be there. But we head into these things hoping 
inside, mysteriously, whatever it is. We're saying it's out there, but we're going in with this hidden secret hope that we'll be fine. And when we go in, it ends up costing us way more than we ever expected to pay. And we come out way less than when we went in. That is the nature of idolatry. problem is outside of you. The fix is outside of you. The hype is outside of you and the costs are buried. When you just think about this in social media, I mean, in pornography, I don't even have to, I'd like to think I don't have to continue to even speak with details in those places for us to see how this plays out. I think of the realm of how many people are searching to create a version of themselves that they like online. I think that you will be living a paradox of conditional self-love and constant self-hate. Likewise, someone who's pursuing a sense of validity, power, manness, or your fullness in your sexuality, when you pursue this, you come out and you've turned, you've turned relationship building inside out. You amputate your ability to be meaningfully intimate. Is it worth it? In week one, we said very often that the role of technology that we use in life is to roll back the effects of the fall. Do you remember that? To reverse the effects of the fall. It's an interesting thought. And there's ways and times. Certainly for external problems, that makes sense. For, you know, so if my shoe's untied, I tie my shoe. I mean, there's no heart issue there. But when we are trying to innovate to solve the problems of the heart, that's where it gets tricky. When we're trying to displace this problem from in here because we can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't touch it, right? And it's uncomfortably close to us. We have culpability and blame. There's a need for confession. There's a sense of, of human weakness, all in these things here. So when we push them out here, then we attempt to innovate to roll back the fall. But can you really do that? Can you really mitigate the effects of the fall? Not the realest ones. Not the separation we have from God. Not the root of sin. Those things we cannot innovate. Those things are not waking, waiting for an invention. They're waiting for redemption. They're waiting for the work of God and the Holy Spirit to come into us. And the Lord, in his power, directs us towards our sin. Not as a way of driving our face in it, but of a way of saying the problem is central. It's, it's in you, and it's in, it's in the center of who you are. And he's in the work of rebuilding us from the inside out. 
And when we displace these things from inside out, we miss that opportunity. We, we're running away from God as we're running after a cheap fix. The goal of this series, I suppose, would be to awaken us to the medium of the digital age, to let us know the medium's not neutral, it's doing things, to make us awake in the way we operate it. And the goal of this series would be to make us aware of our idolatrous tendencies. Awake of the, awaken to the medium and be aware of idolatrous tendencies. If we can understand how something works, where it tends to bring us, and we can understand who we are here, then our smartphone becomes a tool, a balanced tool. It becomes a thing. We are its master. When we are asleep or numb, or when we are deluded, then we are its slave. And that's the goal, is to awaken and become aware. And so I would ask, I would encourage you this week, because there is, right, when, when we can meet God about who we are, it doesn't happen overnight, right? The slow, good work in the acceptance of God begins to happen. Just even being able to say, I, I have an idolatrous, addictive tendency to seek a validation there. Just to say that in, before the Lord and sort of in the midst of his accepting love where he can say, you do. You do have an idolatrous, addictive tendency of seeking your persona there. And my son bled for that. He shed blood so that I could meet you here. What becomes a shameful moment is a moment of love. We should be attracted to God. For in his time, he'll reveal these things about us. We don't see God because he's invisible. And if anything, you know, I, I'm coming just to the greatest conviction that the most real things in our life are the things we can't see. The things that really matter are the things that are beyond us. And they are the things we should be seeking the most. You know, I, there's a, a mystery. I've always wondered, why does God say in his in Beatitudes, why does Jesus say, blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. I've not been able to connect those two. And until I, my senses now is, for me to be pure is for me to be not after all the things I can see right now. Blessed are those who have eyes for God because then they'll see them. My challenge for you this week, we're gonna close with a song of worship and for a chance for you to re respond to the Lord. Our challenge for you this week, knowing that God is a good father and he wants to uncover these things for our good, is for you to begin to really scrutinize where do you put the finger on the problems in your life? What's the, pro the big problems that you have, the sort of nagging things that chase you over years? Okay, that, you know, if you have a seed of bitterness against your spouse because they're not being what they're supposed to be, but, and it's going to be a recurrent theme, I want you to track that down. And then I'm asking, I'm not saying I know everything about you, 
I'm asking you on behalf of the Lord to approach that problem with great suspicion. Maybe it's not the problem. Maybe it's the foundation of idolatry. That's all I want you to do this week. Just be honest with what you find. Let's pray. Lord, uh, you are a redeemer, so no one here is perfect. Every one of us here is broken, mending, coming, coming clean. Lord, that's what we want. We want hearts of honesty before you. And we know we will never have hearts of perfection before you in this life, so we're not waiting for that good day where we can stand up perfectly clean in front of you. We want to be like children who long to please a father. That's, make us that, Lord. And I pray that for the person running here who's chasing after something less. I pray that you lasso them back in. Give us pure, good, holy eyes, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.